Coming up on Tech Nation, a new approach to actually preventing the truly aggressive triple negative breast cancer with potential for other breast cancers and ovarian cancer. I speak with Dr. Amit Kumar, the president and CEO of Anixa Biosciences, about the scientific breakthroughs and their partnership with Cleveland Clinic. Then, an interview with Sarah Fryer, a tech journalist with Bloomberg News who covers social media. Her award-winning book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, has lessons for today's potential buyout of Twitter. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with David Montgomery, a MacArthur Award winner and a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington. He's the author of The Rocks Don't Lie, A Geologist Investigates Noah's Flood. I asked him, if he was looking for evidence of a flood, what would that be? Fieldwork in Tibet, where I actually discovered evidence for a big ancient flood, was landforms that were deposited where a river had entered a standing body of water. And so what happens is like a river that's carrying a lot of sediment, when that flows into a, a still body of water, a lake, for example, that sediment will all get deposited out, and it can create a feature on the bottom of a lake that when you drain the lake will then stand out in relief on the topography. So you learn to look for certain landform clues that uh, tell you what was there before. Well, from Tibet, we can go to Mount Everest. Uh, and I was shocked to learn that geological formations on Mount Everest, some of them were once at the bottom of a sea. Yeah, one of the little known facts about the top of Mount Everest is that it's actually formed out of trilobite poop. It's it's uh, stuff that was uh, um, <laughs> that's science from tiny. That's science. It's hard science. Uh, stuff that was um, deposited on the bottom of an ancient sea, and it's now capping the highest mountain in the world. Uh, and that's an observation that tells you that the water was over those rocks at some point. But it doesn't tell you that the water is over Mount Everest because the other possibility would be that the rocks that now form Mount Everest have risen from the bottom of the sea. And that distinction between how you interpret fossils that are in rocks at high elevation as either uh, old ocean used to be that high or that the mountains rose is actually a pretty basic distinction that's changed a lot in the history of thinking about geology. It's one thing to look at these traditional texts, however they came down to us in whatever way, but if we look at, at folklore, if we look at myths and history and, and, and tradition, we're seeing floods all the time everywhere, right? Yeah, there's, there's flood stories from all over the world, not literally everywhere around the world, but from places <laughs> in many different parts of the world. And one of the things I learned in writing this book was uh, that the kinds of geological processes that could trigger really big floods in different parts of the world map pretty darn well onto some of the details in the stories of flood or the flood myths, flood stories uh, from around the world. Like in the Pacific Northwest where I live, there's Native American stories of uh, floods that rose from the sea that read a lot like uh, eyewitness accounts of tsunamis, the sort of a big geologic hazard we know today that it's recently affected Japan and, and Indonesia and that this coast where I live is is prone to periodically. You talked about in the in the two thousand four tsunami that that 
the sea gypsies, the Moken people, actually knew when that when the water before the tsunami it just it drained back away from the shore. They knew to run for the hills. Yeah, their their tradition of um, of a flood story of of when the sea goes out far and fast, you don't go out to look at all the marine life that's stranded in the in the tidal zone. You run for the hills. That story served them really well. Uh, they didn't have any casualties during the 2004 tsunami, um, and it's because they had this oral tradition that conveyed the sort of the geologic knowledge, if you will, of what to do in a bad situation. There's other examples of, of people who uh, had similar oral traditions that uh, survived relatively unscathed, where, where their neighbors who didn't were hammered by that tsunami. And so the idea that uh, an oral tradition could actually then enhance the survivability of your um, progeny sort of plays into the idea that that um, folk tales are, that described aspects of how the world worked in ways that helped people survive could be stories that would be told and retold uh, down through the generations and might survive long periods of oral transmission before people started to write material down. And I think that's at the root of an awful lot of flood stories around the world. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features David Montgomery and his book, The Rocks Don't Lie. He continues to be a professor at the University of Washington. In his most recent book, is growing a revolution, bringing our soil back to life. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, new science which has led to new efforts to prevent triple negative breast cancer, and following that, ovarian cancer. I speak with Dr. Amit Kumar, president and CEO of Anixa Biosciences. Then Sarah Fryer, a Bloomberg News journalist who covers such familiar social media companies as Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter. Her book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, received the 2020 Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. And this 2021 interview carries new relevance as the bounds and potential owners of social media companies are meeting head-on. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Amit Kumar. Well, Dr. Kumar, welcome to BiotechNation. Thank you for having me. Just hearing the term breast cancer... Uh, it's terrifying. It's terrifying for anyone just even to think about it. And there are many different types of breast cancer, some far more aggressive than others. That's right. The breast cancers are typically characterized by specific proteins that are expressed on the breast cancer cells. And so many breast cancers are either express proteins that are receptors for certain hormones like estrogen Another type is progesterone. Other types of breast cancers are characterized by expression of a protein called HER2NU, 
which is a growth factor. But the most aggressive type of breast cancer is called triple negative breast cancer because it has none of those three proteins that I mentioned. And as a result, those cells grow without influence from those outside factors. And so they're very aggressive. We as a society don't have uh, very good therapies for that type of breast cancer. And in fact, the largest percentage of women who die of breast cancer are uh, those who have triple negative breast cancer. Now, you said to me in an earlier conversation, you have one cell that has the mutation that makes it cancerous, and that multiplies and multiplies. It has to get to a trillion cells before it's a lump and you can feel it? Well, yeah, I, the, you know, typically cancer begins with one aberrant cell uh, that becomes a cancer cell essentially. And then that becomes two cells, reproduces and becomes four, eight, 16 and so forth. And eventually getting to a large number of cells. I just use a trillion as a big round number. That's not exactly what, uh, what it becomes, but, uh, but it becomes a large number of cells. And eventually you start feeling it as a lump when you do a self-exam and you see it on your mammogram. So there have to be a lot of cells, a lot of cancerous cells to become uh, a cancer tumor. That's correct. If you have eight cells or 16 cells or 32 cells in the earliest stages of uh, neogenesis, uh, you don't see that on a, uh, you, don't, you can't feel that when you do your self-exam and you won't see that on a mammogram. Once it's, you know, billions to trillions of cells, that's when you see it as a lump. And that's true of any of the breast cancers. That's correct. That's true of any of the breast cancers. That, In fact, that's true of any type of cancer as well, any type of solid tumor. The Cleveland Clinic has had such a tremendous reputation for breakthrough research over the years. And I know that they have been working on triple negative breast cancer, and you are now working with them. Uh, now, tell us the story of their work over the last decade. Well, yeah, there's a visionary immunologist there named Vincent Tui, who had this idea of preventing breast cancer, or I should, I should say preventing cancer in general from uh, even arising, uh, which is a little different than what the typical approach for addressing cancer has been in the past. And uh, over the last decade, he and his research team has been working on this approach and uh, a lot of animal studies have been done demonstrating that uh, it works. And so in 2019, ANIXA, you know, I met the Cleveland Clinic and ANIXA uh, decided to partner with Cleveland Clinic to take that technology into, you know, clinical setting, the human testing setting, and then eventually commercialize that technology. And so we've been part, we've partnered with the Cleveland Clinic to do that, which includes doing the clinical studies, you know, which are the human studies demonstrating the efficacy and safety of this vaccine, and then eventually commercializing it so that uh, women can benefit. Now, I have to say that all products start with basic research. What was the idea? What did they look at? What were they going for in this basic scientific research? 
Well, they made a discovery. And as you uh, indicated, uh, typically uh, a lot of you know products come with a discovery, sometimes discoveries that are sort of surprising. And they found that there was a protein called alpha-lactalbumin that is expressed in the breast of mammals, but only when those mammals are lactating, because this protein is necessary to help produce mother's milk. So when a woman gives birth, the protein is expressed only in the breast to help produce milk to feed the infant. Once the mother stops breastfeeding, that protein disappears because it's not necessary. And uh, we say it's, it's a retired protein. However, the discovery that Cleveland Clinic made was that when a woman gets breast cancer, and specifically triple negative breast cancer, those cells, those cancer cells are frequently producing that protein again. So Vincent Tui had a, had a hypothesis. He said, if we could train the immune system to destroy cells making that protein, then when cancer cells arise, the immune system will destroy those cells and the cancer cells will never have a chance to become a tumor. Because as I noted earlier, tumors start as a single cell, then they become two cells and four cells and eight cells, and eventually becoming a big mass of cells, up to billions to trillions of cells. When they're at that large stage, it's very difficult to, to deal with. However, the immune system could potentially destroy those cells when they're at the 2, 4, 8, 16 cell stage. And hence, those cells will never have the chance to gain critical mass and become a tumor. Well, let's take the part where we've already had all our babies. We're not going to be doing any more breastfeeding that we know of. And we're saying, okay, great. Now we either have it or we're afraid we're going to get it. We have some indication there. So we're going to want to equip the immune system to destroy any cell that makes that protein with the presumption that uh, that would be a triple negative potentially cancer cell. Is that right? That's correct. That's exactly right. But how do you do that? Typically, you vaccinate the patient. A vaccine is a group of chemicals that teach the immune system to attack something. You know, we're all very familiar with the recently approved or authorized uh, COVID vaccine. And the, the purpose there is to enable the immune system or equip the immune system to attack the virus if you're exposed to the virus. In this case, what we're doing is we're equipping the immune system to attack alpha-lactalbumin producing cells. And we do that by creating a vaccine that includes alpha-lactalbumin, and something called an adjuvant, which is what uh, helps spur the immune system to recognize alpha-lactalbumin. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that uh, are incorporated that uh, are not, you know, we don't necessarily need to go into those details right now. So here's, here's what we're looking for, and the rest is to coax the immune system. Hey, look for this. Look for this. This is what, this is what you're after. That's correct. That's correct. And this is the alpha-lactalbumin. Now, 
All of these human trials start with animal trials. Yes, I know we're, we're trying to get off of animal trials to other things, and that's great. A lot of work being done there. But usually at this point, we have preclinical trials. These are the animal trials before we go to humans. What has been done in the animal trials? How did they turn out? There are a number of animal studies that we've done. The most compelling one was a study where uh, mice that were designed to get breast cancer uh, were used. Now, these are mice that if you just let them grow after they're born, you let them grow, they'll all develop breast cancer. This is a special type of mouse that has been designed specifically to study breast cancer therapies. We did something a little different with these mice. We took half these mice and vaccinated these mice with the breast cancer vaccine, and then the other half got a placebo. And then we watched them as they grew. It turns out that 100% of the mice that were given the vaccine uh, were remained cancer-free, whereas almost all of the mice that were given the placebo developed breast cancer and died. So what that told us is that we were able to, in a mammal species, you know, obviously mice are not, Mice are not humans, but, uh, but they are mammals. And we demonstrated that this vaccine could eliminate breast cancer in, uh, in that species. Now we're engaged in human trials to demonstrate the same effect in human beings. And we're in the phase one uh, portion of the human trials. So just beginning. Now this phase one of the phase one, two, three clinical trial trifecta, I call it. It's like you got to get through all of them. Phase one is where we test for safety and we escalate dosages over time to see at what point will we create other side effects that we don't see now. As I understand it, you've got two different phase one studies going on. Explain that. Yeah, this is a very unique situation uh, that ordinarily doesn't occur for most types of studies. But we have a phase 1a and a phase 1b in the phase 1a we are as you noted testing for safety in escalating dosage and we're also looking for indicators of efficacy so what that means is we are going to be vaccinating women who already have been diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer and they're going through standard of care which is you know typically surgery and chemotherapy and we're going to vaccinate these women and look for T-cells and antibodies in their blood. Uh, specifically, we're looking for T-cells and antibodies that are created by the vaccine to target alpha-lact albumin. And secondly, you know, and of course, we're also going to be looking for all the indicators of safety. We're looking for function of, you know, uh, of all of their organs, uh, temperature, et cetera, et cetera, to just make sure that we're not creating any kind of uh, adverse side effect. And then we're going to do a phase 1B. Now, this is a very unique type of trial that ordinarily is not possible in most studies, but it turns out that many women that have mutations in their BRCA genes are often choosing to have prophylactic mastectomies. So what that means is they're having their breasts surgically removed, even though they're perfectly healthy at the time, 
because they have a very high probability of getting breast cancer. This would be Angelina Jolie would be the example of this. That's right. Angelina Jolie had that done some time ago. And the purpose is to uh, eliminate the possibility of cancer because it's most likely that they will get cancer. And it's most likely that they'll get the triple negative, very aggressive form of the cancer. So many of these women are having their breasts removed. And so we'll, we're taking the opportunity to vaccinate them before they have their surgeries. And then not only are we going to be looking for T cells and antibodies in their blood and safety, but we get a massive amount of tissue after their surgery. And we can look at the tissue at a microscopic level to evaluate whether the T cells are surveilling the tissue because there may be, you know, micro, uh, micro tumors in that tissue. Now, a couple of questions here. Are the women in these phase one studies receiving a permanent vaccine? Well, we, you know, when you think about permanency, um, uh, we, we like to think that it's going to be permanent, but we won't know. We will be following these women for 15 years uh, or perhaps longer, but, uh, but we won't know if a, it's going to be one and done or like, like many vaccines are or it's going to be something that requires periodic uh, boosting. Boosters. We, we, don't, we don't think... <laughs> we know that, boosters. Yeah, we don't, <laughs> we don't think it'll require boosters because the target, which is alpha-lactalbumin, is not a virus that's mutating, for example. It's a, it's a set protein, and it's the same uh, you know, throughout your lifetime. But let's say you're one of these women who know very early on, say in their early 20s, that they have BRCA1 and or BRCA2 mutations. And they say, this, I really need this, but I want to have children. Can you take the vaccine and have children? Well, you know, we look at the animal studies to tell us what would happen. And you're right, there will be many women that know that they have uh, mutations that have a history of uh, breast cancer, and they may want to take this vaccine before they've had their children. In those cases, a woman can still get pregnant, still give birth, but the breasts of those women will not produce milk because the immune system is destroying those cells that are making alpha-lactalbumin, which are helping to produce the milk. And, and there may be some inflammation in the breast that may produce some discomfort, but this is not life-threatening. Have you ever had a baby, Dr. Kumar? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I, I understand. <laughs> now, when you're finished with phase one, you're going to presumably go on to phase two and phase three. What will those clinical trials look like? The, uh, the design of phase two and phase three will be dependent on the data from phase one. So I can't give you all the details, but in general, a phase two trial utilizes a larger number of patients to look again for uh, safety. And typically you use the dose, the maximum tolerated dose that is uh, appropriate in that study. The MTD, mas maximum tolerated dose, is something you determined in phase one. And now you're going to test all of the women in phase two with that dose. And then the critical trial is the phase three trial. And that's where you take a large number of patients who would get the vaccine 
and then a large number that get a placebo and it's double blinded. So the patient and the physician don't know if they got the vaccine or if they got the placebo. And then you watch these women and you watch over a period of time to see how many incidents of cancer occur. And when they occur, you put them into the placebo bucket or you put them into the vaccine bucket. And the ratio indicates how efficacious the vaccine is relative to nothing. So, so it's you know similar to what, what was done with the COVID vaccine. Uh, a large number of patients were given the vaccine and a large number were given the placebo. And you watched how many COVID infections occurred in the vaccine arm versus the placebo arm. And that told you what the uh, ratio, you know, what the efficacy was. And so that's what we're going to do with that type of trial. And it may take a few years to complete that uh, section of the, uh, of the trial, but we hope that we see the results similar to what we saw in the, in the animal studies. Now, you said in phase two, it's a smaller study. In phase three, it's a larger study. What kind of numbers are we looking at? How many, how many subjects are in each? It'll depend on what the data looks like in phase one and phase two, frankly. But in general, it'll be uh, on the order of thousands of, of women who will be uh, participating in the trial, I mean, you know, a couple of thousand. Now, in phase three, with these several thousands of women, how do you qualify the women? Well, in this particular trial, we're interested in women that have mutations in their BRCA genes because these women are highly susceptible to getting breast cancer. And typically, when they do get breast cancer, it's triple negative. And so this is what we call, you'd call an enriched population. And then we'll be testing, you know, we'll be giving half of them the vaccine and the other half a placebo. And we'll just be watching them over time to see how many women in each uh, arm gets cancer. Now, can you detect that cancer early? Well, there are a number of companies that are trying to develop technologies to try and identify cancer as early as possible. However, the FDA is, you know, those are not FDA approved products at the current time. So the FDA is going to require in our clinical trial that we diagnose the cancer using the standard techniques, which is typically mammography. So it has to be well along to be acceptable to the FDA. That's correct. And if you had that mutation and you have thousands of women, how many would you expect to develop cancer without the vaccine? Just a handful. In fact, uh, it, it depends, you know, the, the trial will last long enough to get statistically significant ratio between one bucket and the other bucket. So if we find that, you know, an equal number of women are getting cancer in the vaccine group, versus the uh, placebo group, then the trial is going to last a long time. If, however, if we see a large number of women in the placebo group get cancer, but no or few women in the vaccine group get cancer, then, then it'll be a shorter trial. And, uh, you know, you might be able to uh, complete the trial with only 20 or 30 women having, uh, uh, having uh, contracted cancer 
in the placebo group if if the vaccine group is zero or just a handful. Dr. Amit Kumar is the president and CEO of Anixa Biosciences. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, the inside story of Instagram, what it means when one social media company is bought outright or acquired by another. Timely insights today when you wonder what will happen when some company or someone sets out to buy an established social media company. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Amit Kumar, President and CEO of Anixa Biosciences. I keep going back to the original idea of the discovery that uh, this well known protein was on the surface of, of breast cells while you were lactating, and then it retired. You didn't need it anymore. But when you got to this one stage and you had it on, the, the cancer cells of triple negative breast cancer, it came out of retirement. This was an enormous discovery. Does this relate at all to ovarian cancer? Well, it turns out that there is a similar protein on the ovaries that retires over time. In this case, the protein retires by the time a woman reaches menopause. However, when epithelial ovarian cancer arises, which is you know, the most common form of ovarian cancer, uh, those cells are producing that protein again. So similar to the breast cancer case, we are working with the Cleveland Clinic on developing an ovarian cancer vaccine that targets that protein. Um, now that program is a little earlier, you know, little earlier stage. Uh, and so we're probably about a year and a half away from getting into clinical trials there. Dr. Kumar, we have one incidence here in breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer. We have another in ovarian. Uh, could this have general applicability? 
Yeah, we think uh, in the breast cancer situation, we think uh, that uh, it's possible that this vaccine could eliminate many other types of breast cancer. Um, we're focused on triple negative because it's the most aggressive uh, type of breast cancer, and we've studied it very well. But uh, any breast cancer that's producing alpha-lactalbumin should be could be targeted by this this uh, vaccine, and potentially we could eliminate a large number of uh, all types of breast cancer. And then on top of that, uh, more generally, as we discover new proteins, new retired proteins and other types of cancer, in principle, we could develop vaccines against all of those other types of cancer. And who does not have cancer somewhere in their family? Absolutely. Uh, Cancer is one of those diseases that every one of us has either personally dealt with or uh, know someone who's, you know, who's had it. And uh, it affects, it affects the, the person uh, who has the disease as well as everyone in that person's orbit. In fact, uh, a few years ago, my mother uh, contracted breast cancer. And uh, now my two daughters, for example, are at high risk. And uh, I would love to be able to at some point, uh, vaccinate both of them and not have to worry about breast cancer for them. Well, Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Thank you very much, Moira. Dr. Amit Kumar is the president and CEO of Anixa Biosciences. More information is available at Anixa, A-N-I-X-A, anixa.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Instagram. How did it start? What was its point? What has it become? And what lessons can we learn from its journey? Bloomberg journalist Sarah Fryer is the author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. Well, Sarah, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me. Now, I think we better start out since not every listener uses Instagram. They have sort of an idea uh, and others use it intensely. What's the social media Instagram? What did it start out as? What is it today? Instagram has essentially become this benchmark for relevance in our current society. It started out as a place to share mobile phone photos, which if you remember the excitement of being able to take a picture on your phone, Instagram was the place that made those photos look way better with their filters. And people who used Instagram since then have sort of been trained on this idea that everything they post on Instagram is allowed to be more beautiful and perfect than the reality. There's that culture of performance, of of personal branding on Instagram that has made it this, this place where we show off who we want to be seen as uh, and build businesses. And basically, if you're building any sort of visual business, whether you are a fitness instructor or a cake decorator, you are building it on Instagram now. It's completely transformed the way that those things get started. And if you are a young person, Instagram is the place where you go to 
to compare yourself to your peers and say, you know, who is more interesting? Good idea or bad idea. <laughs> oh, it's both. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, who's having an interesting life? Who's dating who? Uh, it is the primary social network for that generation. And and I would say for people of my generation too, I'm, I'm in my 30s. We had Facebook in college, but Facebook is, is crowded now. So we've moved along to Instagram. Moved to Instagram. And what also happened is that when you were in college, and you were on Facebook, as an example, you were on your laptop, you were on a computer, and then we kind of went through tablets. This is part of moving all of us onto these smartphones. This is where we're living our lives. And if you can imagine, Instagram has been around 10 years, which seems like a long time, but also in the course of history in technology, it's not. It's a decade of transformation where we all just became imbued with this reverence for the visual because of carrying these mobile phones around and being able to capture what was happening in our lives, not just when we were at home on our computers, but integrating the smartphone into our visits to restaurants, our our weddings, our, our travel, our outings with friends. Uh, we have fewer of those lately with coronavirus, but that is what, what Instagram has turned into. It's our companion for life's experiences. Now let's turn to the economy of influence. It's like, hmm, all of these influencers, digital influencers, new term, but that was born essentially out of Instagram. Well, what happened, and, and it was almost happened against the wishes of Instagram itself. I, they were trying to build this place for craft and art and and culture. And then they were a little bit horrified when the accounts that they had promoted to their users saying, these are the suggested people we want you to follow because we think they're setting a good example. Well, those people got quite popular because of Instagram's recommendation. And then with those hundreds of thousands of users, they were able to say to brands, you know, I've got a bigger, more focused audience than a magazine, than a, than a website. Like I have built this personal relationship with these people who will take my advice and do what I say. You know, if I post myself in an outfit, they want to know where I bought it. I might as well profit off of that. And then this, this economy of influence is born and people start striving for that higher follower account because that number is now equal to monetary opportunity. So regular celebrities became influencers, influencers turned into regular celebrities. And today the Instagram you see is quite commercial. We're always interested in the start of these things. And uh, the two co-founders, Kevin Sistrom and Mike Krieger started it in 2010. 18 months later, 13 employees, they sell it for a billion dollars to Facebook. That's a shock. That's an absolute shock. If you look at the number today, I mean, tech acquisitions have really ballooned in value. But at the time, that was totally unheard of. Nobody had ever paid a billion dollars for a mobile app before, let alone one with only 13 employees and no revenue and only 25 million users. But what Facebook saw in Instagram was a future competitor. They saw an app that was already capturing the attention of young people on mobile that was already quite influential in our culture. Barack Obama used it, Kim Kardashian used it, Justin Bieber used it. And, and that was where things were happening, it was on Instagram. And Facebook thought, 
we've got to own this because we don't want Twitter or Google or anyone else to own it. And we also want to make sure that we figure out this mobile thing. Because as you said earlier in our conversation, Facebook started out on desktop and it was painful for them to shift that design to mobile and figure out how to make advertising work on mobile phones. That was like a, a huge problem for them. Their stock, once they went public shortly after the Instagram acquisition, their stock cratered by half because investors were so worried about whether they would figure out mobile and Instagram had it set. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Sarah Fryer, a tech reporter with Bloomberg News and a frequent contributor to Bloomberg Businessweek. She's extensively covered such familiar social media companies as Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter. She's here today with her book, which has been named the Book of the Year by the Financial Times. It's No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. Well, you can't get to the inside story without talking to a lot of people. And I understand you talked to 200 people. I talked to hundreds of people. And, and I think the, what was different about this book adventure than maybe some other business books people have read is I didn't just talk to current and former employees. I wouldn't say that this is a tech founder hero story where you disrupt an industry, make a bunch of money and have lessons of, of success, although part of it has elements of that. I wanted to really draw the connection between Instagram and the tech ecosystem at large in our culture. And so I talked to competitors of Instagram at Snapchat and Twitter. I talked to people who were becoming famous on the app. I talked to parents. I talked to psychiatrists. I talked to teens, um, high school librarians. I, I tried to talk to people who whose lives have been shaped by this app to draw the connection between the drama internally at Instagram, the clashing egos with Facebook, the, the threats to growth and survival, with the decisions that they made, the founders' values, the the things that they chose to spend their time on, and then how those product decisions then affected us, how we live, what we value, what we strive for. Any acquisition by a large company always brings changes to the company that's been acquired. What were the immediate challenges for Instagram when they were acquired by Facebook? The One of the craziest stories that I learned was right after Instagram joins Facebook, everyone's excited. They've been working to the bone. They, they have not slept. They're, they're desperate for Facebook's resources to help them after all these sleepless nights trying to keep the app alive with all this fast growth. And the Facebook growth team meets with them and says, well, we would love to help you, but here's the thing. Before we do that, we have to make sure that Instagram photo sharing is not a threat to Facebook photo sharing. Once we figure out whether you will hurt Facebook, then we can help you. So the study ended up inconclusive, and of course, Facebook helped Instagram grow, and in fact, was a, a very pressuring of Instagram to grow in the way that Facebook wanted but that was a sign of things to come that Instagram was, you know, brought in and every headline said, oh, Instagram will get to be independent within Facebook. Kevin Systrom remains in charge of this app. 
Um, but the reality was more complicated. Facebook wanted Instagram to serve the goals of Facebook and was not as interested in Instagram maintaining what it wanted to be. And there were a lot of clashes between the Instagram founders who who really had this this reverence for culture and the people who were making the best content on the app, catering to them directly. Facebook was all about growth. They were all about scale. What Facebook wanted was numbers. They wanted more attention, more users, more time spent on their apps. And so that DNA started to slowly infuse itself into Instagram. And the founders really resisted a lot of the things that Facebook was known for, like excessive notifications to open the app and recommendations of, of people to follow. They wanted it to be more, more simple. So Instagram tried to do what Facebook wanted them to do. Kevin Systrom wanted to appease his boss. And Mark Zuckerberg appreciates if you are growing, if you are crushing the competition, and if your revenue is going up. And Instagram accomplished all of those things, and they were actually accelerating in growth when Facebook comes under fire for the 2016 presidential election. And Zuckerberg starts to think, why have we been investing so much in Instagram's success when that might actually cannibalize Facebook's future, that it might actually be bad for my legacy, the thing I created, if we let Instagram continue to grow as much as we have. And so we started to cut off resources for Instagram and say, you can't have as much headcount as you want. You can't have as much opportunity to advertise on Facebook as you want. And you, everything that you do has to go through me. The old squeeze play. <laughs> and so the founders realized that they were actually in charge that they were just directors of product for Instagram under Mark Zuckerberg, the only CEO that there was room for at Facebook. Okay, so we've said revenues, always key. We've seen where the influencers can use their accounts on Instagram to get paid to push product or to go to events so the events get promoted. But how does Instagram make money? Where is its revenues? Instagram makes money the same way Facebook does, which is promoted posts within the within the feed. As you're scrolling through, it'll look just like an Instagram post, but it'll be from a brand. And they've started to do that in their Instagram stories feature, which is which is their disappearing posts as well. And what's new this year is they have started to transition into taking a slice of that creator economy, that influencer economy we were talking about. They have now made it possible if you have a, a brand that you're building on Instagram, you can actually sell products directly through the app to your followers. And eventually, uh, Instagram will be taking a cut of this and hoping that it will be the next big business for Facebook after advertising. So you got sort of a, a, a Pinterest eBay uh, <laughs> insertion, eBay store insertion into Instagram. <laughs> confluence of all all social media. Yeah, there, it's it's like a it's like um well what Instagram has accomplished is it's made it possible for each of us to have our own collection of of 
media that we consume. So a person who is a celebrity to me is, is not the same as a person who's celebrity to you. We could even be in the same household, in the same age group, but think completely different people are famous because there are so many folks on Instagram building followings and sharing with their audiences. So what this what this does is it, it makes it easier for for people to sell very specific types of products to to an audience that maybe would be harder to find if you were just selling on Amazon or eBay like that's a general audience but if you are for instance um wanting to buy uh there's this influencer Katie Storino she she uh goes to stores and tries on their largest size and it's not big enough for her. And she's like, listen, I want to spend money on your fashion. Make it in my size, uh, supersize the look. And, and she has been, used that platform, the commentary on lack of appropriate sizing for women in the U.S. to, to sell a whole line of products dedicated to the problems that plus size women have. This is her people. She, they follow her. They love her. It's like this world that she's created that you wouldn't really see if you went to Target, like you wouldn't see that line, but you have an audience that's captive to it. Now you mentioned young people a lot. What do we know about the demographics of the influencers and the demographics of the audiences? Well, Instagram does skew young because young people are living life through their phones. They're not watching cable news. They're not reading a physical newspaper. They're learning it all via video and via memes. And, and so I think that Instagram, while some some older folks, I think, would use Instagram as a place that almost replaces Facebook as a social network for themselves, younger people see it as a, a place to consume media. When the coronavirus lockdown happened, Instagram became the venue for live musical acts and uh fitness classes, all those things were happening on Instagram live that would have happened in person, but couldn't. And it, and it worked out. A lot of people went and entertained themselves that way with that kind of live audience. Now, in the case of Twitter, you have so many letters you can work with here on each tweet. Is there a, a length to the video that you can have on Instagram? Well, in the very early days, Instagram only allowed square photos and everyone thought that that was strange. But with that constraint comes creativity. Uh, if you have to make a photo that's a square, you'll, you'll think of photos in a new way. It's the same thing that happened with Twitter. If you have to only fit 180 characters in a tweet, or now it's 240 characters, you will get creative about how you say that and, and really work on making that element good. Um, and so that's what the founders wanted. And since then, Instagram has proliferated into a bunch of different media types. You have short video, you have long video, you have um, reels, which are essentially um, competitive with TikTok. If you know what TikTok is, it's like a, it's like a video sharing app where people copy each other's memes and try to just do them, do funny dances and um, keep it positive. So, so Instagram has become a lot more complicated, but also with a lot more opportunity to create whatever kind of content you want to create. So there are 6 million Insta celebrities. 
on Instagram. What does that mean? There are people who have millions of followers that you and I have never heard of. There are millions of them and, and they are building businesses. This is becoming their career. Uh, and, and it's, it's essentially like, like if you are anyone in the world now, you can run your own media company. That's what it is. You, you build an audience, you advertise against it, you create the content. It's hard work. You have to be consistent. You have to be innovative. Um, you have to work with, with different brands to, to do the advertising or the merchandising. And a lot of, a lot of people who are trying to do this are, are, uh, either struggling at it or some of them are doing really extremely well, like enough to drop out of college and make a living out of it. You'd spend uh, a lot of time throughout the book considering the impact on people, the impact on society. Every Instagram account would have the chance to be not just a window into someone's lived experience, but also their individual media operation. Now, we know that you got to have this whole media operation, but the commitment is into your lived life. Do we know yet uh, what, where the healthy line is between how far you let people in, how much you construct versus this could be very damaging. Well, I think, I think that we need to be cognizant of the fact that Instagram has trained us all to curate, to build a personal brand, to know what works and what doesn't. And even if you see an influencer um, sharing aspects of their lives or going deep into, into what's happening, it's a curated story. It's, it's strategic. That's what's happening. And, and it all goes back to the earliest days of Instagram when they decided to filter photos. Initially, the filter was meant to make these grainy photos on the iPhone look better, but iPhone photos got better. Instagram still had this culture of everything you post having to be more beautiful or artistic or perfect than it actually was. Well, the co-founders, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, left Instagram in, in 2018, very early on. Where are they now? What are they doing? They're thinking about their next thing. Uh, Kevin Systrom wanted, and, and Mike Krieger too, they wanted to take the time to, to pause, have their kids, spend time with them, maybe do a little bit of skiing, a little bit of art purchasing and, and a little bit of writing. And, and, um, they, they did, they have tinkered around on some projects. They have this project called RT.live that tracks the uh, likelihood of an increased prevalence of coronavirus in a state, whether a state is getting safer or less safe. Um, and, and that's one of the only projects that's been public from them so far. Well, I guess they can afford to do anything they want, but at least they're still friends. <laughs> That's right. This is the great news. They're still friends. They're still friends. They're still very close. And what about the other 11 employees? Where are they? You know, one of the craziest things about the Instagram acquisition is the the early employees didn't make bank. Some of them, uh, maybe a, three or four of them made made money that was enough to 
make them rich for the rest of their lives. Um, but the vast majority of them just got a little salary bump. <laughs> and it was actually very, very painful for them to go through that because if you are in Silicon Valley and you are at a hot app like Instagram that gets acquired by Facebook for a billion dollars, which is totally, as we said, unheard of in that era, all your friends and family and colleagues and you know everyone expects that you can just like retire or become a venture capitalist or an angel investor at least. And that's not what happened. So there are some very bitter feelings among those early employees. This app and all of the apps have to do with our attention. And, you know, there's, there's only so many people and so much attention. Where do you think this is all going? More of our attention. <laughs> That's what Facebook sees. No, no, really. I mean, I, I so almost think about like, you know, the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, where, where they, they're cutting down the truffula trees to make these sweaters and, uh, and eventually the, all the trees are gone and there's like one seed left. And, and it's like with these companies, Facebook and the rest in technology, the natural resource is not a tree or oil or anything. It's our attention. That is what it is. And so they are competing with our sleep. They're competing with our time with our families. They're competing with our work days. And that's the the next step is trying to figure out how to integrate themselves into more of our habits. Well, Sarah, congratulations on the Financial Times Best Book of the Year. Your very first book. I don't know what you're going to do for a second book, but I, uh, no pressure. No pressure, Sarah. Um, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. Really appreciate you chatting with me. Thank you so much. Sarah Fryer is a tech journalist with Bloomberg News. Her book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, received the 2020 Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. It's published by Simon & Schuster. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.